The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Avery Schmitz. Internet Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 4th, 2023. The police killing of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols in Memphis last week has reignited long-standing calls for national police reform. To contextualize this recent tragedy and attempts to end discriminatory law enforcement practices, I chose an interview for today's Archive episode from June 3rd, 2020. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Rashawn Ray to discuss mechanisms of police violence, potential policy solutions, and more. Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 3rd, 2020. Dr. Rashawn Ray is a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He's also an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Maryland College Park, where he directs the Lab for Applied Social Science Research. He is a scholar of, among other things, police-civilian relations and has done a lot of work on police-involved killings over the years. He joined me today in the virtual jungle studio to discuss the mechanisms of police violence, what causes it, what can be done to address it and reduce it, and the role of race in this problem. We talked about police unions. We talked about implicit bias. We talked about the difference between legality and morality in police shootings, and we talked about what policy levers are available to bring an end to the rash of police killings. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 3rd, Rashawn Ray on police violence. I want to start with try to get our hands on the uh, on the scope of the problem. There are a lot of police shootings every year. Uh, of course, George Floyd did not die in a shooting, right? He died in a, a knee-to-the-neck hold, or, or I don't know what to call it. How many people die every year or are seriously injured every year at the hands of police forces in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, well over a thousand and so I think one of the ways to think about how many people are killed, because for some people, they start doing 
an analysis and say, oh, well, you know, it's a little over a thousand. Um, when you compare that to the general population, 330 million, that's not a lot of people. But see, officer involved killings, and it's important that, you know, these terms matter, particularly for law enforcement to, to say officer involved killing, oftentimes to say justifiable homicide, death by legal intervention. These are the technical terms that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as as well as the Department of Justice uses. What's key, though, with this metric is when you actually think about how frequently it occurs throughout a normal year, that every day, every couple of days that the police officers have killed someone. And of course, when we start to highlight racial disparities, one thing we know is that every one out of 1000 black people in the United States can expect to die due to police violence. And I think that statistics should unnerve us all. What that means in a given year that a black person is killed by a police officer every 40 hours. And there are a couple of additional stats that matter when it comes to teenagers, say like Tamir Rice or Antoine Rose or others. Black teenagers are 21 times more likely than white teenagers to be killed by law enforcement. And then the key stat that really highlights George Floyd's situation is that Black Americans are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed when they are not attacking or have a weapon. And I think that statistic becomes the most troubling stat. And when we think about these killings, they are at the end of a continuum that oftentimes starts with the incident that happened with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper in Central Park, where he's out bird watching. She calls out the the damsel in distress, one of the most classic racial tropes we have, which is a black man threatening a white woman. She knows what Central Park means to race relations, what it means to white womanhood. She literally shakes her dog to make her dog yelp to actually call the police and make it seem like that he that Christian Cooper, who was a black man, was doing something physical to her. And one thing that black Americans know is that the Christian Cooper incident which unfortunately happens more often than people think, that that sort of incident starts a continuum of police violence and brutality that oftentimes ends up like what happened to George Floyd. So yes, we have the killings, but we also have everyday, normal, mundane ways that policing operates in society that is highly based on race. Yeah, so I think that continuum is a really important point because you know if if cops are dispatched thinking they're showing up at a violent scene where somebody is being attacked rather than showing up at a scene in which a bird watcher is asking a woman to have her dog on a leash uh the chances that that scene becomes a police violence scene are dramatically higher than if they're not going in with conditioned by the expectation that a violent incident is already underway. And so I think the the relationship between the dispatch question and the on-scene violence question is probably a pretty tight nexus, no? You're exactly right. And it's an empirical fact. So some of the research that I've done along with my colleagues, I, I, I have the 
fortunate pleasure to direct the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland in College Park. We call it LASER. We've been doing work on policing for years. We do implicit bias trainings. We do work on body-worn cameras. We analyze all these data. And one of the main factors, um, in addition to race, that matters a lot in policing encounters is what the person who called dispatch said. And that's an example of what Amy Cooper knew in that incident is that she had the power to be able to leverage racial stereotypes and racial tropes to elicit a response from law enforcement. And so, I mean, there have been so many incidents when I've worked with police departments around the country where an incident has blown up, um, meaning not necessarily literally blown up, and it's important to note that during this time period, but literally where it's become a large scandal in a city or a state because police officers has received, have received misinformation showing up to a scene. The other thing I know from law enforcement, interviewing hundreds of them, doing ride-alongs with so many of them and my research team as well, is that not only is it about what the dispatch says or the information that the dispatcher receives, it's also about the location that they're going to. So there are certain hot spots that literally where crime is more likely to be committed, but also places where police officers expect for that to happen. And these hot spots are literally emblematic of what police officers call going in hot. So they are more likely to turn on their lights. They drive quicker. They, they're ready to pull their gun. They are ready for something to happen in certain neighborhoods than others. And the unfortunate thing is that when it comes to a continuum of this sort of information, particularly when they show up at a scene and they've been given vague information, like a person that has on a blue shirt or a person that has short hair, or it's a man and he looks to be around six feet tall, that that is oftentimes where social psychological stereotypes come into play that leads to profiling. The unfortunate thing about profiling is that in theory, it seems to make sense. The unfortunate part is that in reality and in practice, police officers are horrible at being able to profile a situation based on characteristics they've been given and properly identify a person. How horrible are they? Actually, some studies show only 2% of the time are police officers correct in who they actually find who was doing something. And interestingly, they are more likely to predict it correctly when the suspect is white versus black. Now, does that mean that a white person is more likely to commit crime than a black person? Of course not. But what it means is that my research shows that police officers are using what we call in sociology a different social script by which to, to make sense of criminality. So when they encounter a white person, they're actually looking for criminal behavior. Does the person look jittery? Does the person have their hands in their pockets? Are they looking around? Do they seem like they're out of place? Things that might lead to suspicion. But I found that for black people, they're actually using skin tone as that metric. And it's a, a, it's a horrible metric to use. And it actually leads to over-policing in black communities. When you say using skin tone, you mean the darker the person is, the more likely they are to impute criminality? Exactly. That's a remarkable finding. I, I, I would have predicted something a little bit subtler than that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's unfortunately not subtle at all. And it actually brings to question as I study policing and, you know, implicit bias has been highlighted so much over the past several years. And we do these implicit bias trainings. I've probably done a hundred of them over the past decade from 
working with several police departments, large, small, mid-sized, working with the Department of Homeland Security, working with the military, working with corporations, universities, is that we've spent more time focusing on that. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when it comes to these statistics, there's one big New York City study that's important that actually led to the New York State Supreme Court ruling that stop and frisk was unconstitutional. What this study looked at was around 2011 under Bloomberg, about 700,000 police stops where police had the ability to stop someone and frisk them if they thought that they might be either in the act of committing a felony previously done so or have contraband or an illegal weapon on them. And what that study found was that 98% of the time that the people who the police officers stopped were not committing any crime, nor did they have anything on them. But 8% of the time, people were arrested for resisting arrest. I mean, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense if you've been stopped for no reason and you weren't actually doing anything wrong in that moment. But what's particularly problematic is in addition to those 8% of arrest, that about half of the time force was used and overwhelmingly force was used on blacks or Latinos who were stopped versus whites. So I want to go back to the circumstances in which all of this becomes lethal, either with a gun or with a knee or, you know, a chokehold or something, you know, a thousand officer involved killings a year is a lot. And I, I, I find the, comparison to the size of the population is a is a silly uh, not silly on your part but silly on the part of the people that you're citing um because unlike other things that cause death you know police are there to protect not to kill so it's not like you know comparing it to cancer is when I mean, cancer is not there to protect you right on the other hand there are cases of officer involved killings that are uh, absolutely righteous in the sense that, you know, somebody is poses a lethal and immediate threat to the officer or, you know, is charging out of a bank with a bunch of hostages, right? I mean, there are situations in which you want officers to use lethal force. How many, in your judgment, on average, of the roughly 1,000, 1,200-plus cases a year of officer-involved killings, how many of them are tragedies that should have happened or was was not inappropriate for them to happen? And how many of them are, you know, improper uses of lethal force by law enforcement authorities? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that it depends on whether or not we're talking about legality or morality. One thing I know from talking to and interviewing hundreds of police officers is they will oftentimes say that didn't seem right, but it was legal. And that is a statement that I've heard so many officers make. So when it comes to what the FBI considers justifiable homicides, it's extremely high. Like oftentimes homicides by police that are justified. I mean, is an extremely high percentage, well over 90% of the time. And part of what's important there is if a lay person sees some of these incidents, they would say it was wrong. The thing is, is it protected by the law or not? And I think that's where part of what we're seeing spill over into streets, where we're seeing some of the issues at. 
is that legally a lot of these things are legal. It doesn't make them right. And even some officers talk about how things need to change from a legal standpoint, which is one of the biggest things I've learned. And of course, what I wrote about recently in my piece, Bad Apples Come from Rotten Trees and Policing, because the solutions we've came up with to deal with policing are all about bad apples. I mean, like, do I think that there are some quote unquote bad police officers? Do I think that some are racist and sexist? Yeah, I do. I mean, do I necessarily think that it's more than any other profession? Not necessarily. But what I do know is that the laws allow for bad apples to proliferate because the policies that are put in place to hold them accountable are so much on the bad apple side and the law is lending itself to them. But I think I'll give you a good example. Something happened recently. Um, of course, people know about the George Floyd incident and people are starting to, to really know about the Breonna Taylor incident, which is where police officers were serving a warrant. Um, in a lot of cities, they have what's called no knock warrants that in a lot of areas, say like Little Rock, they are starting to ban these. They consider them to be violations of the Fourth Amendment is where police officers show up to a house. They don't have to announce themselves. They go in. They're serving a warrant. Oftentimes, these warrants are being served for things that are nonviolent, but police officers go into these scenes hot, partly because they're not knocking on the door. They're busting down the door. They're busting in windows, going in people's homes. They don't know what's behind the door. And the problem is that in a lot of states, uh, well, pretty much in most states in the United States where it is legal to, to carry a firearm, but in certain states, particularly in the South and the, the Midwest, and in some case, the upper, the upper West part of the country, Gun ownership is extremely high. So when someone busts into your house, people's reaction is to defend themselves. That it leads to an incident where a person like Breonna Taylor, who was in the healthcare field trying to protect people with COVID-19, is of being shot up with multiple bullets in her own home. And the question is going to be, is a killing like that, based on what I know of policing, will probably, it'll be questionable on whether or not his route is justifiable. But if the officers say, well, we seen a weapon because Breonna Taylor's boyfriend pulled a gun, shot back at the police because he didn't know why they were there. Come to find out they were at the wrong house, which happens a lot more than people think. And so now all of a sudden the officers uh, might be justified in what they did, even though I think most people view that as a very unfortunate situation. So much so that the police chief of the city of Louisville resigned after that incident happened. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so do you think that like if if we divide the curve of, you know, the spectrum of police involved killings from the outrageous nobody defends and nobody would defend like George Floyd to the, you know, sniper has a chance at the other end of the spectrum. The sniper has a headshot at the, the hostage taker who's got you know, 50 hostages then, and is, you know, and it's clearly a justifiable or appropriate use of force under the circumstances. How much of the uh, officer involved killings in your judgment fall into this category of legally justifiable and yet wrong? I mean, is that, is that a large percentage of them? You know, I, I think that they're, what what I've found about police killings is that one of the key metrics in court that's used is they bring in these experts. Um, I know several of them. They are oftentimes amazing at what they do. They're being called in to say 
whether or not what the officer did was reasonable. That is the, the key phrase. Did the officer who was involved in this killing, did they act reasonably? Did they act like another officer would? Can I just yeah. pause you there? Because am I right that the standard of reasonableness that they apply in a lot of these cases is whether the person uh, had a subjective perception of threat that a reasonable person might have perceived under those circumstances, that it ends up being really a very subjective sense of put yourself in the officer's shoes and and see whether you would have, you know, in the adrenaline rush, a reasonable person might have behaved as he did. That's exactly right. And that's why the, the question you ask as a person who studies this is difficult because I see the different positionality. So if we're going off of the law and looking at whether or not an officer acted reasonably because that officer felt fear for themselves or for someone else, that instantly makes it justifiable. This is the, the, the problem, though, is that from the perspective of the fraternal order of the police, one thing I know is that they give them essentially a script that if you're involved in an officer-involved killing, you say that you feel for your life and the life of others. That's what drastically makes George Floyd different, is that everyone's looking on camera and seeing that he wasn't a threat. But one thing that I wonder, and that I know actually, is if we did not have that videotape, Officer Chauvin and the other ones would have created a blue wall of silence and said, yeah, you know, he did something, he moved, I felt a threat, and that's why I was still holding him down. And it's unfortunate that he died, but I was fearful at the time. And that's why I continue to hold him down. And it wouldn't have been anything to dispute it. And based on the information, another officer would have said, potentially, well, based on the information we have, I probably would have done something similar. And I think that gets to a legal standpoint as we continue to talk about ways to reform policing. I think that is a big one. Fear should not be used as a viable defense for taking someone's life, which is why I'm saying there is a difference between legality and morality. One of the other things I know is that the time by which police officers take to make a decision on whether to take the life of a black person versus a white person varies. It varies in all of the statistical tests that we have in regards to computers that we use, in regards to the virtual reality decision-making training that I use in my lab, which is, is cutting edge and second to none. We look at the speed at which these sort of things happen, and then we see them playing out in real life. And that is part of what leads to the stat that Black people are 3.5 times more likely to be killed when they're not attacking or have a weapon. Who says that? Police officers in about 16 states. The key problem is that most of them said fear. Like, how do you fear someone who doesn't have a weapon and isn't attacking you? Well, unfortunately, it's what I call it's when blackness becomes weaponized, that even when black people do not have a weapon, their physical bodies become something to be feared based on the way stereotypes operate about people's bodies. And are white officers and black officers materially different in that when you when you and I want to hear more about the the virtual reality tests that you do, but when you test white officers and black officers, are black officers significantly less likely to fear black suspects who are unarmed? Not at all. You know, it is one of the one of the biggest fallacies that I have to debunk, which is that some kind of way that police killings and police brutality is about 
white officers killing black people and in particular killing black men. And it's simply not true. I mean, the research I've done overwhelmingly shows that regardless of the officer's race or gender, that the outcome becomes the same. And I have actual data on this. You mentioned the virtual reality experiments we have. What we've done is we've developed 360 degree fully immersive virtual reality scenarios that mimics what officers encounter in everyday life. So we have domestic scenes at people's houses where a neighbor called the police for a domestic disturbance. We have a traffic stop. We have dealing with people in public spaces who are suspicious. We have convenience stores that have been robbed. We vary the race of the person. We vary the gender of the person. The person talks exactly the same. It's the same person's voice. And we look at the way this plays out. And the race of the officer does not matter at all. Now, with that being said, the race of the officer does matter for internal sanctions. And this is where it gets a little complicated for most people to, to think through this because we're dealing with something different. So in other words, let me paint a picture. Let's say someone was beat up by the police, that the likelihood of a person being beat up by a white officer or a black officer doesn't really vary. That's the same. But when it comes to who might be held accountable internally for that, black officers are more likely to be sanctioned within law enforcement um, than white officers. They're less likely to be promoted. They are more likely to be given what they call grunge work, and they are more likely to be sanctioned for, quote unquote, blowing the whistle for bad behavior. And I really don't understand. I really don't think people understand when I seen what happened to George Floyd and I seen the other officers involved and I seen them standing guard, but I originally seen another officer with Chauvin behind him. The first thing I did was I was like, is there body worn camera footage? How can I get access to it? I went and listened to the transcript. And one thing that I don't think people recognize is one of the other officers was saying, hey, you know, he's saying he can't breathe. So we, should we turn him on his side? And Chauvin was like, no, he's flaming us. He, he, he's fine. And then the guy came back again, like a minute later, he was like, hey, you know, he seems like he's having trouble. I think we should put him on his side. Let's just get him up, put him in the car. Chauvin was like, no, he's going to stay here. He's fine. And so for a lot of people, they say, wow, how could you sit there and let a person die like that? Like you should have pushed him off. You should have did something. There are so many times I've seen where officers have done that. Like an officer I know from my hometown in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, who recently did that, got put on two weeks suspension without pay during a pandemic. So we have to recognize the dynamics that are at play. It doesn't make it right. But as a researcher and a person who studies social policy related to policing, my job is to understand and help unpack some of the key dynamics that lead to the outcomes we see. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
It's really fascinating. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into the disparities in disciplining because uh, that's a, a, a different conversation. But I think it's a, that's a fascinating finding that from the suspect's point of view, it doesn't matter whether the officer is white or black or male or female. But from from the internal disciplinary point of view, it matters a lot. Uh, that's I mean, that's I think that's a really that's a really interesting finding. Um, I want to talk about remedies. So in in a country that has a national police force and an interior ministry, right, that sets policy for a national police force. You know, you look at a problem like this and you say, we need a new interior minister. We need a new national police guidance, right? But we're a country with 50 states, 50, you know, some territories, the district, each, you know, city and jurisdiction has its own police force. They're under wildly different sets of policies. And so as we start nationalizing this issue, and we started nationalizing it at the time of Ferguson, of course, but I think that's accelerating now. How do you think about it as a question of national policy and as a national problem when there are so few levers as a matter of policy? You know, these people aren't all under the same command and control. They're not subject to the same policies. They're not subject to the same laws. How do you think about it as a national policy question, even though it so obviously is a national policy problem? I think that's probably one of the most important questions. I mean, I do think that most of the leverage happens at the state level. I think at the federal level, there are a few things. I think first, we need a national database of police violence and police killings. So we know how many people are killed by jellyfish every year. The CDC collects that information. Jellyfish are dangerous. Yeah, they are. (laughs) They are. And, you know, interestingly, in America, not as dangerous as as police officers, right? If we collect this information on jellyfish, then we should also collect it on police officers. But instead, we only have data on about, as I mentioned before, 16 states, even though there have been other you know, outlets, particularly journalistic outlets that have been collecting these data, mapping police violence and The Guardian. And, and, you know, I think New York Times has a database. But part of what people don't realize about this database, and Senator Cory Booker has really been pushing this, and I've been doing some work in that area, is that it's not simply that police departments don't want to do it. It's not that simple. Oftentimes, it's a capacity issue. Like, while have I worked with some police officers and departments that simply don't want the data? Yeah. But you know what? People don't realize there are about 18,000. Not only do we have 50 states and several jurisdictions and territories, but we also have 18,000, over 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States, 18,000. And so when I think about that, even more reason why we need the federal oversight, because most departments are like in the heat of the night. That was one of my favorite shows growing up, Matlock and in the heat of the night. That's what I watched with my granddad. And most departments are so small that they don't even have the capacity to collect the data that's needed. So that's first thing. Second thing, and I talked about this in, in, in this recent article, which is we need to ensure that officers like Chauvin can never work in law enforcement again. If in a lot of states, even when an officer has been terminated for police misconduct, they can go work at another place. And oftentimes what happens is that even before they're terminated, 
there in some states, what, what happens is that there is like a 48 to 72 hour reprieve that allows the officer who has been involved and been involved in this police killing to actually get his or her effects in order. What does that mean? They instantly consult with their fraternal order of police rep. They hire a lawyer. They figure out what's going on with their pension. They figure out, should they instantly resign? Because if you resign, that helps you keep your pension. That also helps after the trial, you have the ability to either sue the department for for something as it relates to a wrongful uh, investigation. And if you were terminated, a wrongful termination. And so the first thing we need to ensure that those officers cannot work again. Why is this important? Chauvin, the officer who killed George Floyd, had nearly 20 police misconduct complaints, nearly 20. That was under Klobuchar when she was the prosecutor and had cases that it came before a grand jury. It could be argued that if they dealt with him as a bad apple, George Floyd would still be alive. And he's not the only one. Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Ohio, 12 year old that was playing with a toy gun in the, in the park. Um, the officer who did that had previously been found to be unfit mentally to be a police officer at his previous department where he resigned from and then applied to his new department. Then after he killed Tamir Rice, he went to another department. And if it wasn't for an organization tracking him, he would be a police officer right now. The same thing for the officer who killed 17-year-old Antoine Rose in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So that's the, the second thing. The third thing, which is, I think, the, the big part, and I hope, hopefully we get to talk about immunity and how that plays out with, with, with officers, is that there needs to be a shift from taxpayer money to police department insurances as it relates to civil payouts for police misconduct. Eventually, George Floyd's family is going to receive a large civil payment. And those monies are going to come directly from his family's tax money. Their money is going to be used to pay them back for George Floyd's, what many people are calling a murder. And when we look across the country, let's take Chicago, for example. Chicago has paid out over $600 million in civil payouts for police misconduct over the past two decades. In fact, they have some money earmarked in the city budget to deal with these sort of claims. And the problem is that police officers are completely alleviated from any sort of culpability and accountability. The civil payment does nothing to them because of immunity, because of the way that qualified immunity works for law enforcement. If we shift this to police department insurances, it becomes similar to our healthcare model, where when physicians are doing surgery, of course, they have their own malpractice insurance. But for a lot of companies, healthcare organizations, they take on that insurance for their healthcare providers. But then what happens is based on what happens in that hospital, based on what happens at that surgery center, that if you have a physician who is constantly messing up, accidentally removing the wrong organ, puncturing something, heaven forbid, killing someone, that all of a sudden that leads to the premium going up. And eventually the hospital and the health care company can say, you are costing us too much money. You cannot do surgery here any longer. And they can actually refer it to the state board to have that person's certification removed. We need to help police chiefs do that because all police chiefs and officers know who the bad apples are. Everybody knew, everybody knows how Chauvin is. Everybody knows how he is. And they couldn't do anything about it because of qualified immunity and the fact that he is simply immune and held and not held accountable to the way he treats people from a civil side. How big a problem in that? So you've described a, 
a, a real dis, a really dysfunctional incentive structure there and a a litigation system that's placing uh the where the wrong party is carrying the risk right so you have the taxpayer carrying the risk which alleviates pressure on the officer but how different is that if an insurance company is carrying the risk why don't we take the view and, and of course this is would get pretty punitive toward bad uh, toward good officers but taking your argument to its logical extension if you're a doctor who's practicing you have medical malpractice insurance yourself right you have if you're a small business uh man you have you know business insurance if you're driving a car you've got a automobile insurance policy why should the liability be on the department rather than on the individual officer if the if the if the goal is to disincentivize the use of inappropriate force by the officer yeah that's a good question and and there are a lot of people who have been arguing this arguing that we simply need to deal with qualified immunity i think part of the problem is going to happen is that police officers are already so underpaid like a lot of our public service workers teachers firefighters that even with an insurance policy that they have in a lot of regards it would still be difficult for the family to recoup some of the money once the individual is sued and i think you know we've seen a lot of examples of this kind of play out i think the other thing that's that's extremely important is a lot of police officers have you know some sort of liability protective insurance for something that might happen. But part of the reason why it needs to fall on the department, and even though the city might still be paying that insurance policy, I, I do want to be clear that that's kind of how I think that it, that it will probably go and how it should go, is that part of what happens is that police chiefs will then get a digest of how much these cases are costing them, how much these cases um, are increasing the, the premium that is on that policy. And I think that that if it was on the individual officer side, part of what would happen is that a lot of families wouldn't even remotely get the amount of money that they actually should get. And I do think that similar to the officer, that the department and oftentimes the city should be held liable, but that police department insurance would cover a lot of that. So it's not necessarily that I'm opposed to to that model, I think that to your point, it becomes really punitive and it particularly becomes punitive to the quote unquote good apples who are out really trying to do their job. I think that it then will lead to a justification of removing a lot of officers who we actually still want to see in our neighborhoods instead of removing the ones who we don't want to see. So how big a problem you've mentioned the fraternal order of police several times how big a problem in this space are the police unions and to what extent is the union system functioning as a, a shield of protection around officers who behave very badly with lethal consequences? Quite a bit. You know what I mean? One thing I should say, I have several police officers in my family. In fact, my great uncle was the first um, black chief of police in my hometown. My uncle was a police officer. My cousin is a police officer. I have several police officers who are friends. And one of the interesting things about 
the question you just posed is that the union poses a huge problem to being able to hold officers accountable because of what I described in regards to the process that they're able to use, that 48 to 72 hour process, the fact that they have a script for officers to say that they feel for the, feared for their life or they feared for others, and the fact that they still teach sort of tactics that should not be taught. So in Minneapolis, for example, there are like over the past several years, there have been like 40 or nearly 50 people who have went unconscious because of the chokehold that killed Eric Garner. Who's teaching that tactic? It's not the police department. They've ruled it as something that they don't do. The Fraternal Order of Police is still teaching it. And one thing I know is that in a lot of places around the country, the Fraternal Order of Police president is way more powerful than the chief. And that is a huge problem. There are a lot of people who feel like the union needs to be disbanded. Um, you know, I think unions are important for several reasons, but I think that that is a, an issue that needs to be dealt with. And I think that my proposal to restructure civilian payouts will help with that. I also think there have been some people who have advocated for using FOP dues that are that's part of a department. Now, you know, people can be part of different fraternal order polices around the country or in different areas, but typically they go with the local one. Um, and just to kind of tell people how powerful these unions are, I'll give one good example from a union in the DC area. This union um, has space that is essentially like meaning owning land. They actually own more land than probably all of the police stations in, underneath this one large police department has has total. It has several softball fields. It has a big building for meetings. It has a bar. It has a restaurant. It has a, a gun range. I mean, these places are like country clubs for police officers and not saying that they shouldn't have some of those things. But the point of saying that is that these unions are extremely, extremely powerful and influential, not only at the local level, but also at the state and federal level, and oftentimes aim to block any legislation that is trying to ramp up accountability of police officers. There is a law enforcement agency that, at least in my experience, really doesn't have this problem, and that's the FBI. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the FBI goes after all kinds of dangerous people. It doesn't have, a, in recent years, a problem with unjustified shootings. How much of that, in your judgment, is just the difference between day-to-day -day policing and, you know, federal investigative law enforcement, that they're not out patrolling situations, right? They're, they're not street cops. And how much of it is, you know, a difference in training that, the, you know, this is an elite law enforcement agency and it actually shows standards that you can train to? Yeah, I, th I think both of those are reasons. I think the main thing is that in any given day, police officers encounter hundreds of people. And at the end of the day, what we want is for most of those interactions to be innocuous, for them to be nominal that two people cross each other's paths and both of them go home at the end of the day. But part of what happens is that for police officers, they deal with a lot of social interactions, which is what 
we're really concerned with with our virtual reality scenarios is that a lot of police training focuses on tactics, focuses on what do you do after you've learned someone is a threat. Much less of the training is on the front end work. And what we found is that they are much more likely to spend their time on the front end work, meaning the conversation that happens before something happens. And while police officers are trained to do two things, create time and space, by doing that, you create space from the person and then you create time is that you get behind something to shield yourself and then you create distance, you create space, then you create more time to make a more rational decision is that they don't deal with the social interactions. Like there are so many officers in the multiple departments that we've worked with where when we have them do one of our virtual reality scenarios related to traffic stops, some of them have a tick where they instantly touch their gun. And after the scenarios, either the training officer or one, one of the people on my staff that I work with at my center would say, hey, you know, you touched your gun. And the officers would say, no, I didn't. And it's like, yeah, you did. You did. And in fact, we can show you on video that you touched your gun. They did it so unconsciously. They didn't even realize they did it. So if you're if they're walking up to someone's car, they have instantly heightened the situation. And when the person in the car starts jittering and reacting now they're like, oh, that person must be doing something. Yeah, they're responding to you holding your gun for pulling them over for riding through a stop sign. To your point, the FBI is much less likely to have these sort of interactions because of the investigative cases that they're on. They typically know who they're after, where they're going, why they're doing it. So they oftentimes are able to construct a plan, whereas for police officers, they are instantly, instantaneously being reactive to a situation they've been put in. And and to go back to your original example of 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 the bird watching situation, the FBI isn't subject to dispatch bias in the same way. Exactly, they do respond on short notice to things, but they're not you know they're they're not responding to nine one one calls. Nope, and that's what police officers do more often than not. They're responding to nine one one calls at people's houses, in public places, in public spaces. And oftentimes those sort of things lead to a lot of ambiguity. One of the big findings we have is not just that we see that they're more likely to have bias, not just their own attitudinal bias, what we call implicit and explicit bias that, that plays out for officers against black people. But the other thing we found is that the setting matters when and this speaks to the FBI, um, uh, the FBI comparison. We found that when the situation is more rigid, meaning the officers are more familiar with the setting or the type of setting like a convenience store, and they recognize that they are interacting with, say, a store clerk, the same way they might recognize that they're interacting with the homeowner that comes to the door. So not having no knock warrants, but actually having someone come to the door, we found that bias significantly reduces. When there's more ambiguity, such as being in public and police officers show up, say, like to a protest, and there are 10 people standing around and there is a broken window behind them, that bias is more likely to come out there. And we found that bias is more likely to also come out in terms of how they communicate, particularly with black women. While we focus on the force used on black men, which the stats bear that out, but we also found that they are much less likely to be respectful to black women during the conversations that they have. That's really interesting. Do you, you know, one of the things I've noticed just locally in the district uh, is that there is a totally different interaction between cops and homeless people when they know each other than when they don't. Yep. You know, and uh, there's some homeless people in my neighborhood and, you know, they have this 
very warm relationship with the cops who, you know, go by and they sometimes check on them. And, you know, my, I, I have no, I've not interviewed any of either side about it, but it just seems like they see each other every day. So they, they kind of know each other and, and the cops are, you know, not worried that they're going to do anything. And so they slip into this very easy relationship. Whereas you take the same homeless person who maybe, you know, have some serious mental illness problems. You've never, you know, behave in very strangely. You've never interacted with that person before, much less seen him every day. You may have a totally different reaction to him as a cop, particularly if he's, you know, being eccentric and and it's upsetting somebody, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and even extending your point, one big thing we found is that where officers live also matters. You know, and also where officers are from. So part of what happens is that there are a lot of police officers. In DC is a good example, but in every major city, there are two professions that simply cannot afford to live in most major cities. That's police officers and teachers, arguably two professions that we need desperately, that we want to have around and that really, in many regards, help to raise us on one end and help to maintain um, some sort of order on the other. And what, what I've noticed, if we just take D.C., that a lot of officers live an hour away, an hour and a half away, that does two things. The first big thing that it does is that it means you're less familiar with where you're actually policing. So to your point, they, they're very familiar with people in their own neighborhood. And typically, they're more likely to live in whites' neighborhoods. So when they encounter someone who's white, I think it becomes a pause. And it's like one of those things from a social psychological standpoint where they say, oh, that, that guy kind of looks like the, the dad at my kid's school. And it gives a slight pause. Whereas with black people, they never really have that pause because of the, of the racial composition of their neighborhoods because they don't live actually where they work. So another big policy solution, and Philly, even though Philadelphia has had a lot of problems when it comes to policing, that department and others have instituted a policy. Newark has done it as well, where they mandate that in the first, say, two to three years of employment, that you have to live within the city jurisdiction that they police. I think that policy makes a world of difference. Um, cities around the country, like Nashville, is trying to do that. So that does become, say, a city-level policy. And I think that cities can really help their police officers do that by providing a housing subsidy. So while you might not be able to significantly increase their salary, what you can do is give them a housing subsidy to incentivize them living there and then make sure that you give them down payment assistance on homes to further ensure they're there. Now, it's not just simp as, as simple as them living in a city. It's also about ensuring that police officers are spread throughout the city so you can implement a certain number of officers who can live in, say, one part of the city versus another part of the city. And I think those sort of policies will go a long way to ensuring that police officers not just say no, the homeless person who they're walking down the street from, but also know the people who can be able to distinguish the people who work at night versus the people who um, who are simply strolling through that neighborhood who might be looking to do something. So we got to wrap up, but I want to ask you before we do about what are the jurisdictions in the country that are doing this well? I mean, you know, this is a bad week to ask about any police department doing a good job because we're seeing pictures of violence from police against protesters seemingly from all over the place. But 
Witcher, when you look around and you've dealt with a lot of departments, which are the ones that have taken the problem of officer violence most seriously and made the most progress on it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I found that a lot of mid-sized departments do a really good job. Um, and that's a broad generalization. But I want to give a specific example. And that is Greenbelt Police Department in Maryland. And I'll tell you what they've done that I think has improved it. One of the big things they do is they do a lot of community engage, engaged work. And I know for police officers, they say all of us do that. Yeah, but this is different. Let me explain. They're not just out playing basketball with kids, you know, once a week, which definitely matters. But instead, they're doing things like actually having difficult conversations. And I've led some of these sessions. One big one that I think is important to do is they go to the high schools and they do large sessions with seniors. They break into small groups. We have a platform where they ask a series of questions to each other. They actually go through our virtual reality training as well, which I think is a great tool. The other things they do is they are always up on best practices and not just for the people at the high end of the spectrum, which I've noticed happens in large police departments. In other words, I found that a lot of police chiefs, a lot of deputy chiefs, assistant chiefs, even captains and majors have a really good sense of what law enforcement looks like and kind of how it should go. But their rank and file don't because they never get the opportunity to participate in conferences. They never get the opportunity to do what a lot of us have the ability to do, which is do continuing education and not just training, which they do in service training. This is more like going to conferences to get best practices, meeting people across the board. Greenbelt spreads those opportunities throughout. And so I've seen them have hardcore conversations. I've also seen them admit when they get things wrong. And I think their department has done a good job to to aim to deal with some of the issues and to be proactive about it. So oftentimes police departments only really want to talk and deal with race when something bad has happened. No, you have to deal with it when nothing has happened. You have to be proactive with it to get out ahead of it and to build trust in your neighborhoods and your, in your community. So when something does happen, you know who to go to, you know how who the trustees are, and you can hopefully instantly reestablish trust after something has happened. Rashawn, thank you so much for joining us. I would say this has been a pleasure, except that the subject itself is so unpleasant, but it's an important one, and I, and I appreciate your joining us. Well, thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and that is never more on display than when we have guests who come from the ranks of my Brookings colleagues. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Pinterest, on all the social media companies. You should leave us a rating, of course, five stars, wherever you found us. You should patronize the Lawfare store. Wear Lawfare socks. What is quarantine for if not lounging around in Lawfare socks? The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer is the long-suffering Zachary Frank of the law firm of Goat and Rodeo. Our music is, as ever, performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.